0: More than 10% of people in the United States have diabetes, and many of them don't even know it. Diabetes impacts people across all
1: social, economic, and ethnic backgrounds, and can be deadly if not managed well.
0: But there's another danger of diabetes we don't talk about enough, and that's to your heart. People with diabetes are two times more likely to have a heart attack or stroke than people without diabetes. So today, We're going to share some ways to manage diabetes, what to watch out for, and the best ways you can protect your health and your heart. Welcome to Be Healthistic, the podcast that is more than just health and wellness
1: information. It's here to help you explore your options across traditional and natural medicine so that you can make informed decisions for you and your family. This podcast illuminates the whole story about holistic health by providing access to the expertise of Drs. Steve and Drew Sinatra, who together have decades of integrative health experience. Be Healthistic is powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. Now, let's join our hosts. Hi, folks. If you like what you hear today and you want to listen to future conversations on all things integrative and holistic health, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Also, check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will feature video versions of our episodes, plus video extras you won't wanna miss. And finally, we have more with me, Dr. Drew Sinatra, my dad, Dr. Steve Sinatra, and other Healthy Directions experts over on the Healthy Directions site. So visit healthydirections.com to explore our database of well-researched content and information. And of course, you can always follow us on our social media channels. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Be Healthistic. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra, and I'm joined today with my father, Dr. Stephen Sinatra.
0: It's good to be here, Drew. All right.
1: And uh, today we're going to be talking about diabetes in the heart and what are the connections between having blood sugar issues and heart conditions. So, Dad, you know, I've never asked you this question before, but I'm very curious. I know your mom was a type 1 diabetic. Uh, Was there any reason for you becoming a cardiologist because of that?
0: Oh yeah, I, I, you know I've thought about this for years, and there's no doubt about it. I mean, when I was 10 years old, I'd come home from fourth grade elementary school, and I see my mother in diabetic shock, sweating, shaking, and and uh, she would say, "Give me sugar," and I used to, you know, give her sugar, you know, or orange juice back then. Sometimes uh, she would go the other way; she would go into. Uh, you know, high blood sugars and uh, become very sleepy and develop coma. And then she even asked me to give her insulin shots. So when I was growing up as a young boy, 10, 11 and 12, I lived with diabetes firsthand. I can remember being in fourth, fifth grade and uh, I'd hear a siren go down the block, an ambulance. And I'm saying, oh, I hope it's not for my mom. You know, I used to live in fear of that. Did diabetes in my family shape my introduction into a medical career? Of course it did. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You know, as one thing led to another, I I, I was lucky to get into college and medical school and uh, the universe has been very good to me, so to speak. that's,
1: That's a great story. I never really had all that information. So thanks for sharing that, Dan. Well, Dad, today we're talking about diabetes and this is a major, major problem right now in America. And in fact, we know now that there's over 34 million people that have diabetes And there's also, they're saying, around 100 million total people that have blood sugar issues, including prediabetes. So almost one-third of the population... Is having some sort of blood sugar issue right now, and that's that's a major concern.
0: This is a problem. I mean, this is a major problem because remember, it's not just diabetes that's the issue. It's all the complications of diabetes that you know, you know, can end people's lives earlier. They get heart disease. They get you know high blood pressure. You know, obesity can be a factor in type two. I mean, there's so many elements of of diabetes that can really weaken you know, the medical system going forward because it puts a big stress on the medical system. Diabetes ages you quicker. You know, there's no doubt about it. So if you age quicker, and now we know it's age glycation, and, you know, that's a big factor in diabetes. And for our listeners, what it means is if your blood sugar is high, like in a diabetic, and if you have a lot of protein circulating in the blood, like we, we normally do, the proteins combine with the blood sugar, and they form these age glycation byproducts which accelerates the whole aging process. So that's why diabetes is is really crucial, you know, in the whole aging phenomena.
1: Yeah, from my understanding, like you just said, I mean, diabetes is really helping speed up heart disease and we know that there's microvascular complaints, there's macrovascular complaints um, and issues, there's inflammation, there's more oxidative stress, there's even a hypercoagulability that exists with diabetes. And so it makes sense that it is sort of facilitating this,
0: this um, speed up of, you know, heart disease. Absolutely. And the big crucial factor there is endothelial cell dysfunction, which is related to surges of insulin going up and down. And that's what happens, you know, in, in a diabetic person. Insulin goes up, insulin goes down, whether they inject it, whether you're a type 2, you know. And so it it's, it's just a standard fact that the diabetic person needs to really take control of their health. You know, if you are diabetic and you do listen to this podcast or you know somebody who is or it's in your family, hopefully you can get some tips to really improve the whole situation. Because remember, our motto has been for years, what? Prevention is easier than cure, right? cure, exactly. So basically, that's what we want to uh, really, one of the pivotal points our listeners need to you know get from us is that you know if I do have insulin resistance, if I do have higher blood sugar, if I am headed for diabetes, what can I do to prevent it and prevent the complications of diabetes, which can be deadly and also you know shorten lifespan at the same time? Yeah, and we're definitely
1: going to jump into some of those things uh, in the middle of this podcast here. First Dad, I wanted to get into in, in your practice, when you saw someone with diabetes come in, I mean, what was your major concern? Let, let's talk about type 2 diabetes, right? Non-insulin-dependent yeah. diabetes. What was
0: your main concern regarding the heart for them? Oh, it, it, it was classic, Drew. It's amazing. I would see patients come in the office with higher blood pressure, higher triglycerides, a little bit plump around the waist. You know, a guy would be approaching uh, 40 inches, a woman would be about 35 inches. They might have some borderline hypertension, and, you know, instead of reaching for two or three drugs or, or whatever, you know, trying to treat, you know, the high triglycerides, the high blood pressure, the maybe the borderline higher blood sugars or the borderline hemoglobin A1Cs, I would recognize offhand that, hey, wait a minute, you got insulin resistance. Sounds like, sounds like metabolic syndrome. <laughs> yeah, metabolic syndrome. And the people would say, well, what do you mean? What's that? And I would say, look. Your blood sugar is borderline. Your hemoglobin A one C is going up, which, which remember, remember, a hemoglobin A one C is a measure of a long blood sugar, like a thirty day blood sugar. It's a it's a direct measurement of how your blood sugar has been over, you know, over four, five, six weeks. These people were shocked, Drew. Hmm. They would say, "Wait a minute, you're telling me I could have diabetes?" And I go, "Yes, yes." And sometimes it would come in, with just borderline hypertension or come in with high, you know, hyper or come in, you know, with, you know, increase in abdominal girth. But whatever it was, it was type two diabetes. And I looked at this. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I would see this almost almost, I would say, every day in my practice. It's amazing how common, how common it was, even back then, and it's getting more and more common now. When you think 1 in 3 to 3.3 to 3.4 people you know, could have this situation, I mean, it's serious. It's serious. You know, Dad, I, I run a
1: hemoglobin A1C on everyone that walks to the door. I also do fasting blood sugar and maybe even a fasting insulin if we're kind of thinking about diabetes. So you know what gets me, though, is, is sometimes people come in, And they've had a hemoglobin A1C of, let's say someone in their 40s and 50s have had a hemoglobin A1C of 5.8, 5.9. So they're technically pre-diabetes. Yep. And their doctor hasn't talked to them about it. It's like they haven't really, you know, considered it a major concern. And I do find that's that's a, that's a red flag, in my opinion, that we need to hit this pretty quickly to kind of lower this blood sugar or else we're going to lead to some of these complications with heart disease. So I, I do hope that if there's any physicians listening to this, that you really do address prediabetes as something that is is preventable, at least if someone has it we can help reverse that pretty quickly back into the regular range, at least
0: for hemoglobin A1C. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. With diet and exercise, you can reverse it immediately. And I got to tell you, Drew, when I had men and women come into the office with this abdominal girth situation, and I'll tell you, a mere five-pound weight loss, just a five-pound weight loss, uh, could change these blood chemistries. As a heart specialist, I was looking at this continuously uh, in my patients because, again, I practice a lot of preventive cardiology, you know, in, in my earlier days. Well, that's such a key point you made there, Dad. It doesn't take
1: that much in order to make a big change with, with blood sugar. So, for example, if someone comes in, they're not eating that you know, good of foods or they're not exercising or they're smoking or they're overweight or they're not taking any supplements to help support blood sugar, if you get even one or two, maybe even three of those things on board, you can see drastic changes within a couple of weeks, even a couple of months.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, a little walking program with you know, replacing carbohydrates with healthier proteins and healthy fats. Remember, people don't realize this, but when you take in protein and healthy fats, your insulin response is like like minimal compared to a high carbohydrate diet. You know, if, if you're in a high carbohydrate diet, your insulin response is major. Major. The secret to diabetic control or getting the you know the, the right metabolic situation is really, you know, cutting back on carbohydrates and burning up the sugar even more with a low-level walking program. Walking the dog, you know, climbing steps, you know. Uh, There's so many things, uh, you know, parking your car uh, at a parking space that's further than than you'd like it to be. Uh, You know, a lot of people want to park as close as they can to the building. I used to tell my patients park the furthest away and burn up blood sugar and, you know, you know, burn up calories because, you know, you'll be doing yourself a lot of good little tips like that. Even walking the dog. I had so many patients walking a dog because, you know, it's not only good for the dog, but it's good for you. So it makes sense.
1: Well, I, let's talk about exercise and movement and all that because I think it's so important here. I, I also recommend to people, even if they're working at their desk, to stand up because even if they stand up, there's going to be minor contractions happening of their skeletal muscle, more utilization of that glucose into the, into the tissues, um, even doing like a lunge or a stretch at work or moving around. Just get up from your desk and just move around and then if you've had lunch Take a walk because that's probably the best thing you can do after you've eaten a meal is to go for a little bit of walk to help with that glucose utilization.
0: One of the things I do, Drew, a lot is uh, I have dinner and I'll go for a beach walk, and and the reason being is well, you know when I'm walking on the beach, not, not only am I grounding, which reduces inflammation, but now the walking alone, I'm burning up calories. It's just a great way to um, you know just support the metabolic situation of the body and and remember a walking program you can lose a few pounds you don't need to you know you don't need to lose a lot of weight to make a difference i mean i you know I, and i know we've said it on this broadcast but i got to really emphasize that i mean even the new england journal study showed that study in metformin remember that where metformin and a walking program was as good as taking insulin, almost. I mean, that's amazing, you know. I mean, how you can reverse, you know, type two diabetes, and even, even I have even I had type ones, you know, in my mm. office. I was able to get them off insulin. That's amazing, you know. So, you know, th- that's one of the greatest joys of being a physician when you can do stuff like that. Yeah, the little things that make
1: big changes. I love that. Um, now, Dad, you talked about having or focusing more on like a low carb diet for, for diabetes. Is there any other sort of dietary recommendations that you make anything else that you think of?
0: I like a lot of healthy fat and, and, and good quality proteins, you know, organic proteins as much as possible, good healthy fats. Cause again, the insulin response is minimal now there's certain foods that uh, I, I love, avocados and diabetes, for example. It's monounsaturated fats. You know, you don't get, again, you don't get the insulin response. Avocados support glutathione production. You know, if you take it with selenium and vitamin C, then they have glutathione peroxidase, which is the best natural, you know, antioxidant of the body to support, you know, the immune function. You know, when, when it comes to fruits and vegetables, I like lower glycemic fruits. Certainly. I mean, I wouldn't want to tell a pre-diabetic to be eating a lot of watermelon, you know, even though watermelon has a lot of lycopene, it's good for you. But again, it's a sugary fruit, you know, so you you want to reduce the sugary fruits and and give the, the, you know, the the lesser glycemic types of fruits and vegetables. So, you know, that's what I aim for. And again, if you can reduce the carbs, you know, the pastries, the cakes, the bagels, the cookies, you know, the white semolina pastas, you know, the higher protein pastas I endorse. I really like that because you don't get the insulin response. But anyway, just the carbohydrates in the diet, less carbohydrates is really key. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I know,
1: Dad, you've talked about this a hundred times before, but the uh, the sugary drinks, the sodas, the high fructose corn syrup, those are also, you know, important things to, to avoid, of course, because those can certainly cause issues with blood sugar regulation
0: major major insulin response and remember drew when we talk about these foods right we want to bring fiber into the equation remember this i mean the average american only takes in this different data on this some some researchers say 15 to 21 grams of fiber when we should be taking in 35 to 45 grams of fiber so it's really important that for our listeners to realize The more fiber you take in, what happens is, is not only getting more bowel cleansing, which is really good, but with the fiber, now you're absorbing the sugars slower into the gastrointestinal tract. So you're giving the body a longer time to respond to the carbohydrate or the, the sugar surge. And that's important. So your peaks and valleys of insulin are sort of less, they're dampened, so to speak. So a high fiber diet i really really like you know because again it slows down the absorption and it prevents these rapid rises in insulin yeah i'm glad you brought that up
1: because that, that's really important dad is there an alternative to sugar white table sugar that you recommend
0: you know my patients used to push back on this all the time you know when i was you know seeing patients on a day-to-day basis i love ribose you know because ribose is is it it gives people like a sweetener but it has a negative glycemic effect. In fact, you know, given ribose to type one diabetics, I used to always have have them say if, if they drop the blood sugar too much, you know, they would have to maybe take a little orange juice to overcompensate the drop in blood sugar. But ribose was good because ribose, you know, would add a little sweetness. So if they needed like something uh, in their green tea, for example. Which was very good because green tea has great polyphenols. I would suggest uh, a little ribose to it. Now, what are some other good sugars? I think honey is a good sugar, you know, in small amounts. As is maple syrup, you know, maple syrup has some medicinal value. So, small amounts, you know, of of maple syrup or or honey. I'm not a big fan of some of the synthetic sugars like the agave sweeteners. I I I, I just don't like them. Molasses. Ah, you know, it, in small amounts, it could be okay. But like I said, you got to sort of fit the the sugar to your patient because you know some patients may have preferences. But remember, when it comes to these sugars, less is more. You know, not two tablespoons of honey, maybe a half a teaspoon of honey, something like that. Yeah, great. And what about what about other beverages, Dad? Like, what about alcohol? Do you do
1: you tell diabetics to generally avoid alcohol, or what, what's your take on that? Less,
0: less alcohol. Absolutely. Yeah. Because alcohol is sugar. Exactly. You know? Even wine, you know. Oh, yeah. Even, even, even wine. I mean, I would tell my diabetics to be really careful. And look at beer, for example. Beer has maltose in it. High, high glycemic situation. I mean, I had so many men with big bellies, Drew. Again, you know, they were insulin resistant, they were beer drinkers, they didn't know it. And once I I told them and I said, look, beer is, you know, this could make you diabetic because of of the malto situation, you know, they would get it and they would say, well, doc, I mean, could I have a, you know, a gin and tonic? Could I have a a glass of wine? I said, once you lose your belly, yes. You know, I would give them that reward, you know? Uh, Because again, you, you can't restrict everything as a doctor. Mm-hmm. You got to choose your battles. You got to <laughs> choose your battles. Good, good uh, point, Drew. Excellent.
1: Did you ever have any of your patients wear a continuous glucose monitor? Did you ever have them you do know, that? They, they
0: were coming into vogue uh, you know, when I was going out of practice. I mean, some, some of them were doing it. Some of them were doing the insulin pumps at the time. It was new back then. Mm-hmm. Um, I would suspect it's a lot better today you know, and a lot easier. I mean, uh, even checking blood sugars and, you know, I had some patients uh, who would check two or three blood sugars in a day, you know, you know, trying to correct it. But, the, but, they, but back then, they were doing the finger sticks, you know, which right. is, you know, I mean, it's not comfortable, but it's not major uncomfortable, you know, but they were doing it. Yeah, you know, I bring up
1: the continuous glucose monitor because I've certainly known some patients that have used it and they swear by it in terms of learning what foods or what beverages are causing a high glycemic response in their body or high insulin response for that matter and um, they've used it for you know, exercise to see how much exercise lowers their blood sugar or even for stress or like an illness that may you know, cause spikes in blood sugar. So I feel like for a lot of people, if they really want to dive into this and learn more about their blood sugar, look into getting a continuous glucose monitor to really learn about how these factors in your life, the foods you're eating, the stress you're under, illness, et cetera, exercise can
0: all help regulate your blood sugar better. True, you said it so clear and I got the divine chill on that. You know why? Whenever you can teach your patients the phrase, awareness is curative. The more your patients are aware and the more they can get directly involved in their self-care, just the way you said it, you have a monitor, you realize, oh, that fruit is not good. Oh, walking lowered my, my, my blood sugar you know, level. I mean, this is really cool. This is great stuff. So when patients get that immediate feedback, that awareness is so curative in itself, uh, then their health begins to soar. Because they, they get more and more motivated, and that's what yeah. you want, you want motivated patients to really you know, carry the ball for you, make your job less, less cumbersome and tedious.
1: You know, and, and once someone is motivated, they're gonna see the changes, they're gonna start to feel better, they might lose some weight, they'll see more you know, regulation with their blood sugar, and that's gonna give them even more motivation to keep going. And when the blood pressure goes down
0: and the waist size goes down yes. and the triglycerides go down, Drill, it's like nirvana. They get really excited, you know? Exactly. No, it's a good point. Good point.
1: Now, moving over to some medications and some supplements to help uh, support blood sugar here. I know, you know, metformin is obviously really big in the anti-aging community and a lot of um, a lot of type 2 bi- diabetics are on metformin. What's your What's your overall impression these days of metformin? Are you pro-? Against in the middle, you know,
0: um, being in the anti-aging movement for more than twenty-five years, uh, a lot of my colleagues took metformin, and it, and it made sense. But but right now, I I think I think berberine would be a better choice over metformin. You know, I just feel that even with this new data about berberine and you know activating AMPK, I mean AMPK activity. Is relatively new in the medical world universally at the conferences I'm going to and and the journals that I'm reading is whenever you can stimulate AMPK activity you're driving your metabolic machinery in the right direction in other words you are supporting the body and you're not wearing the body out or wearing the body down and whenever you can activate this enzyme, it's it's driving the body into a healthier condition. Got it. Okay. Thanks for that explanation, Dad.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think I'm on the same page with you, or in metformin. I too like to more use something like berberine as, as an alternative to that. And I do find that berberines are pretty effective for not only helping with blood sugar, but they also can have an effect on um, lipids as well. And that's going to have
0: a positive effect on the heart. Correct. Correct. And And to my knowledge, I have not seen any downside or negative literature on berberine you know and it's amazing i mean once that's one thing about medicine you know you'll you'll find so many papers for and then you'll occasionally find a paper against but uh, i have not found any negativity on berberine yet you know could it happen it's possible but i haven't seen it you know
1: yeah well you know there was a there was a 2008 pilot study uh, in the journal metabolism this was done i believe in japan and they looked at berberine versus metformin and what they found was that over a 13-week period, berberine was pretty much comparable to metformin in terms of blood sugar, but it had an improvement in triglycerides and total cholesterol, which metformin did not. And in that article, I didn't read anything about side effects and such from, from berberine. So I, I've been using it for a long time. I've also used it for treating um, certain gut conditions, like sona has dysbiosis in the intestines. Uh, berberine is an amazing antimicrobial as well. So, it has all these sorts of functions to it that, that make it such a, a versatile herb to use in, in someone's practice. Now, in addition to berberine, what other uh, herbal medicines or even supplements do you think of for supporting blood sugar for people?
0: Well, we used to think of chromium, for example, you know, chromium polynicotinate. And uh, uh, there are some exciting, you know, new forms of uh, chromium. Chrominax is one, for example, I'm really excited about. I, I saw the research on that. I, I think chromium metabolically, again, uh, does everything right. So uh, you know I'm a big fan of chromium. There's certainly cinnamon. Cinnamon can have an effect on uh, blood sugar lowering as an herb, you know it's it it works. Uh, Gemesta Sylvestri is one I used years ago that has a, a supporting impact on blood sugar. But again, Drew, I think the easiest thing is uh, just avoid as much sugar in a diet as possible. You know, just reduce the carbs. And then you're you're giving your metabolic machinery a rest. And that's what you need to do, yeah, because we don't want to wear out our pancreas. We don't want to do that. And that's the problem. You know, we're wearing it out because, you know, I came across this statistic uh, a few years ago when I was writing my book with Johnny Bowden, you know, the great cholesterol myth that the average American was eating like 150 pounds of sugar a year. Well, guess what? Over the last five years, because, you know, we've just rewritten the book. Now it's up to 160, 165 pounds. I mean, that's insanity. Americans are eating too much sugar. And I hope with this broadcast we can get into the heads of of our listeners and say, look, stop the sugar. And you mentioned the sodas, which is a big one, but we just have to stop the sugar as much as we can.
1: Yeah, I did. I couldn't agree more. I mean, as long as someone is motivated to make those changes and change their diet and start moving more and um, and doing other things like that, we see lowering of blood sugar. I'm finding too that people come in though and let's say they're at like a 6.2 for hemoglobin A1c. It might just take longer to, to help lower that just by using you know movement and, and diet. And so therefore, I've been using uh, lots of berberine and I also use gymnema and bitter melon and chromium, like you said, and cinnamon, and uh, obviously like a really good multivitamin as well. And I also like lipoic acid as not only like an antioxidant, but there is some um, insulin regulating effects with that as well, or at least insulin um, sensitizing effects. So I, I do find that if you really get on a really good exercise movement program, the low carb diet, like you were saying, add on some of these nutraceuticals that we just talked about. I mean, people can literally go from being diabetic. To having going to pre diabetes and then back to being normal blood sugar within two three months. Now, well, I should say three months is probably the minimum. But I've seen people go from seven point nine. I had a woman recently that went from seven point nine down to six point four. Now she's at five point four, and that was wow. three and a half months later. We also did a HCG diet with her. She also lost uh, forty five pounds and radically changed everything in her life to to really make that big of an effect. But you know it can happen it can happen over after two three months a significant lower in blood sugar
0: well that's what you're doing drew you're involving the patient in your care and whenever you empower a patient where they can be their own you know self-physician that empowerment is incredible and uh, that's a great job i mean you really did a remarkable job with that lady i mean getting that hemoglobin a1c down is just terrific you know well done
1: well, you know, Dad, and I, I've learned this from you too, is that um, you got to tie in everything in the body. And so, for for since we're talking about diabetes today and its relationship to the heart, on all these patients, I'm generally running a lot of these cardiovascular, you know, inflammatory biomarkers that we've talked about in previous podcasts, like homocysteine or fibrinogen or LP little a or LPPLA2. CRP, ESR, all those types of things. I'm running on those people because I do like to see changes in those markers as well over time uh, because I'm, I'm always concerned about the risk of cardiovascular disease with blood sugar abnormalities. So, for our listeners out there, there's more than just hemoglobin A1C, fasting blood sugar, fasting insulin if you're going to run that as well to, to really look into to monitor your progress uh, in, in supporting your, your blood sugar and you know, preventing heart disease.
0: Yeah, Drew. And for our listeners, I should mention that you were the lead author on that article that was published in Alternative Medicine on on inflammatory mediators in cardiovascular disease. So, yeah, you mentioned them and, and they're important. And and again, from being a cardiologist, whenever you can reduce your inflammatory mediators, I mean, you know, there's a lot of you know, press on C-reactive protein, for example. But, you know, even taking coenzyme Q10, you can lower C-reactive protein. I mean, that's just amazing. So like, or even lower LP little A with coenzyme Q10. So in other words, whenever you can lower these inflammatory mediators, again, you know, you're optimizing the body, you're delaying the aging process and and, and you 're feeling you know in most cases these people are feeling better at the most uh, at, at the same time, and that 's why uh, that woman that, that that case study you had is is so crucial because you know she 's participating in her own health, which is just fantastic well you know,
1: and just to follow up with that too, because she has been uh a remarkable role model for me to continue doing these things with people because she comes in and she feels so good, dad. That's that's the most important piece here. She comes uh-huh. in and she has so much more energy. Uh, her sex drive is back. She's sleeping better. I mean, everything is improved in her life. And that's what gives her, like we talked about previously, the motivation to continue doing what she's doing and feeling so good. And that that to me... That's the best part about being a doctor is when you you're not necessarily at least we the doctor aren't making these major changes in people they're making the major changes and seeing the effects from that that's what makes me just so happy about medicine
0: yeah and 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 the dividend is you say to her Drew I'll see you in a year <laughs> you know right you don't even need to come see me anymore you know what to do yeah, see me in a year that's that's the greatest thing you know
1: that that that's what works well since we're talking today about diabetes and heart disease I feel like we should. Talk about lipids, and what's been your experience with uh, treating
0: lipid abnormalities in diabetics? Yeah, Here's a problem. Most diabetics have elevated triglycerides. I've always felt that elevated triglycerides were more inflammatory than elevated cholesterol. Now, here's a problem. A typical diabetic, whether you're type 2 or type 1, could have, let's say, a triglycerides of 2, 3, 400, uh, and an HDL of 30 or you know 35, which is low. So the triglyceride to HDL ratio gets high. You want that ratio less than two to be ideal. I mean, ideal is around two or less. And unfortunately, I would see these diabetics, Drew, with ratios of seven, eight, nine and ten. I mean, think of it. If you have a triglycerides of 300 and you have an HDL of 30, which is typical for a a diabetic, a type two diabetic, that ratio is ten. And that ratio is not good when it comes to cardiovascular situations. I mean, I think that's one of the worst ratios to have uh, uh, because it can precipitate possible cardiovascular events. So um, the tie-in here and a takeaway here is whenever you can reduce your triglycerides and improve HDL, you're improving your cardiovascular risk profile. That's the takeaway. And that's where I used to try to get my patients down to those lower ratios. And, Dad, can you speak to the the protective quality of HDL? Yeah. First of all, we used to think in the old days, by the old days, maybe five years ago, <laughs> that the higher the HDL, the better. So if we saw in our patients HDLs of 90 or 100 and 110, we would say, oh, wow, this is awesome. Now, in the last five years, we've determined that HDL can be dysfunctional in people because there's different types of HDL. There's there's different varietals like there are of LDL. You know, we know there's small particle LDL, which is highly inflammatory and a fluffier type of LDL, which is less inflammatory. Same thing is true of HDL. Now, recently we think, uh, and I've, I've scanned the literature on this, that if you have HDLs in a range of, let's say, 45 to 65, that seems to be the sweet spot. Where numerically now, numerically you have a really good HDL. Over sixty-five, you could have some dysfunctional components. Under forty-five, we we we'd like to see the HDL higher, but under forty-five, um, again the risk, you know, of the triglycerides, the ratio can go higher. So basically, I I'm concerned about the possibility of dysfunctional HDL.
1: And has there been anything that you've seen that has been very
0: good at increasing hdl well i think exercise is easy i mean that's uh, weight reduction uh can increase hdl certainly things like niacin you know fast acting niacin can increase uh, hdl so um there there are certain certainly little things people can do which can have a big impact on HDL. But I would say weight reduction, exercise, and less carbohydrates, and healthier fats. Again, olive oil showed data in the pre PREDIMED study actually can increase HDL, and that's just
1: amazing. you know. Got it, okay. Well, Dan, let's talk about some takeaways then for this podcast today in relating diabetes and the heart. Uh, From what I've gathered talking to you, I mean, little simple things can make a big difference if that's just moving around the office a little bit more, going for a walk after dinner or lunch, stretching, whatever it is you're doing to move your body more, that can have a significant impact on blood sugar. Absolutely. Movement is key. And then we talked about diet as well. So generally speaking, a lower carb diet, a diet high in good fats and, and a moderate level of protein can be very beneficial for blood sugar and you want to avoid all those Drinks and beverages like the f- sodas and the high fructose corn syrups and the sugar, particularly, that's going to lead to all sorts of dysfunction and blood glucose levels.
0: Yeah, you know, I'll, I've said this before, and I'll say it again: we don't have white table sugar in our house. We don't buy it. Sugar is public enemy number one for coronary artery disease, not cholesterol and fat. It's sugar, hands down. And not to mention too, but the
1: uh, the, the addictive nature of sugar is so common. And so many people, I mean, I, I feel like I had a sugar addiction growing up. I really did. Even though you didn't have it in your home, I'd go to my friends' houses and try to get as much sugar as I could. And Dad, as a, as a final takeaway here, we also talked about certain supplements uh, like berberine or you know, bitter melon or genema or the mineral chromium to help with blood sugar regulation. So there are other options out there uh, besides metformin if someone does want to you know, lower their blood sugar a little bit more than would help with exercise and diet.
0: Correct, and 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 what I would say to that is, uh, again, I th- I think berberine is a is a good adjunctive uh, supplement to take, even just 500 milligrams a day. All right. And is there anything you
1: want to leave our listeners with in terms of this whole diabetes heart disease connection? Anything else? Yeah.
0: So um, I think the most important thing about our podcast today, Drew, is that people have control over their blood sugar. This is a situation where. We have to empower our patients where they they can become their own doctor. So when it comes to high blood sugar issues, overweight status, insulin resistance, our patients can take control over their health. All we need to do is give them the right information. Well said, Dad. I love it. For today's Wellness Wisdom segment, I wanna focus on another risk factor for heart disease that often gets underplayed or overlooked, despite the fact that it's truly at the root cause of most diseases, and that significant risk factor is inflammation. Now, as an integrative cardiologist, I've been talking about this for decades, but the prevailing wisdom in conventional medicine for a long time has been that cholesterol is the main risk factor for heart disease. Don't believe it, folks. Inflammation is the most significant lifestyle-driven risk factor for the development of coronary artery disease, plaque instability, and plaque rupture. So let's talk about inflammation a bit and discuss some actionable steps that you can take now to keep it in check. It's important to note that inflammation is not always a bad thing. It's one of the body's natural defense mechanisms. If you sustain a one-time acute injury, like a banged up knee, the inflammatory mediators in your body do their job and your body quickly heals and returns to normal. However, problems arise when the inflammation in your body becomes chronic. At that point, it can begin to cause real damage. So what are some common causes of chronic inflammation? Infections, high blood sugar, being overweight, and having sticky blood are a few causes. Any of these mediators increases the chances that you'll develop atherosclerosis. But perhaps one of the biggest and most avoidable causes of inflammation is dietary sugar. When you eat sugar, your body releases insulin, which is one of the most endothelial, unfriendly hormones around, meaning it damages the lining of your arteries. Unlike that banged-up knee, damage to your arteries is chronic, creating a constant state of inflammation in your body and setting you up for heart disease. So what can you do about this? Here are a few easy tips you can do to keep inflammation in check. Limiting, or better yet, eliminating sugar from your diet since sugar fuels inflammation. It just makes sense. Reducing processed foods from your diet and eating a heart-healthy diet like the Pan-Asian modified Mediterranean diet, maintaining a healthy weight and getting moderate exercise, limiting alcohol, eating turmeric or taking a turmeric supplement, which helps to quell the harmful free radicals that lead to inflammation, reducing your exposure to pollution, including pesticides, grounding or earthing, connecting to Mother Earth energy. Additionally, there are foods you can begin to incorporate into your daily diet, that help promote a healthy inflammatory response. Ginger, not only is ginger flavorful, but science has shown that fresh ginger can help to support a healthy inflammatory response. I love cooking with ginger. I add it to stir fries and other dishes Green tea. Few foods have as many health benefits as green tea because it contains powerful antioxidant flavonoids, which help to reduce oxidative stress throughout the body and protect against free radical damage. Plus, green tea contains theobromine, which helps to relax the blood vessel walls to promote better circulation. Pomegranate. This delicious fruit is one of my top recommended heart-healthy superfoods. That's because it's one of the richest sources of protective antioxidant flavonoids that support good health. Cocoa powder. I've long advocated eating dark chocolate. The darker, the better. In moderation, of course, due to the antioxidant benefit you get from cocoa. The flavonoids in cocoa powder are powerful antioxidants that promote good cardiovascular health and a healthy inflammatory response benefiting your heart and entire body. So remember, not only will keeping inflammation in check help your heart, it will help to prevent other degenerative diseases such as diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, and arthritis. So let's do everything we can to keep that inflammation low and our bodies healthy.
1: Remember everyone, if you liked what you heard today and you wanna be an active member of the Be Healthistic community, Subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorites and subscribe to the Healthy Directions YouTube channel. You can also find more great content and information from us and the Healthy Directions team at healthydirections.com. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra. And I'm Dr. Steve Sinatra. And this is Be Healthistic. Thanks for listening to Be Healthistic, powered by our friends at Healthy Directions with Drs. Drew and Steve Sinatra. See you next time!